As we prepare together to hear God's Word preached this morning, I'm going to ask you to join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are continuing our journey through 1 Thessalonians. Today we're taking up to do the beginning portion of chapter 5. Listen as I read this selection of scripture and then I will pray and we will consider some of the powerful and pertinent realities that are in this chapter for us today. So listen as I read God's word. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask you at this time, as we turn our attention to this passage of Scripture, we ask God that you would be pleased to take these truths, these things that you communicated initially by the Spirit through your servant Paul to that church in Thessalonica, and you would take those truths that were so needed to give them encouragement, to give them stability, to edify and strengthen them. God, we ask that you would bring it with that same effect to us this morning. God, that it would have its encouragement, it would have its instructive element. So God, I would ask again in this time as we give attention to your word, that you would grant us especially uh, to be able to give our hearts and minds to hear it, knowing that it's not simply stories and opinions and ideas, but we get to hear from God, the sovereign God who has purposed everything and unfolds his plan with power and perfection. Lord, I pray also that you would grant for me to speak very succinctly and very, very clearly the things that you would have me say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, again, we had noticed in the previous weeks that the church of Thessalonica uh, was a church that had been in a season of, a sustained season of struggles and afflictions and difficulties. We also noticed that compared to many other churches, they had a significant deficiency because of how brief the apostle was with them. They didn't get deep and extensive teaching, and as a result, they were far more susceptible to wrong ideas because they weren't, in some places, in a position to compare the truth they've heard taught by the apostles with what this man is teaching because on some issues and some things, 
They hadn't gotten those teachings from the apostles. He had really sought to ground them in, in as much as he could in three weeks and then been pushed onwards. And so they had been misled regarding a number of things, particularly, particularly confused regarding the coming of the Lord. The absolute, sure, second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in, the, in this passage, he's wanting to encourage them with this reality that Jesus is coming again. And he really begins this, I would say, we, we take a look first of all at the, uh, the fact that the scriptures reveal that there is coming a unique and extraordinary day. A unique day, like no other before it, like no other after it. When Jesus will come again, it will be so decisive, so distinctive, so powerful that the nations will take notice. I mean, we live in an age, in a circumstance, we know this. We tell people about Christ. Interestingly, this morning, as we were driving here to the church and traveling along the I-20, we passed a car that was going under the speed limit. We passed a car that was from Florida that had big letters written across the side of this white car in big red letters. It said, read the Bible, it's true, <laughs> which... We could look at that and immediately, you know what we say? Amen. That is right. But I ask you, in your own opinion, as others pass them by on the freeway, how many are saying, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's true. Or how many in society look at that and say, it's not true. That's just a matter of faith. That's a leap of faith. That's a bunch of stories. It's a bunch of myths. It's just a bunch of opinions. It's a bunch of experiences of men long ago. We've outgrown that. We've progressed beyond that. Really? But we know the world has different responses to the Word of God. Different responses to the presentation of Christ. Even I would say this, in the first coming of Christ, men responded in many, many different ways, didn't they? I mean, there was questions among many of them. Could this be the one? I wonder if this is the one. I don't know. No, it can't be him. This one's from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yeah, but when the Messiah comes, won't he do the things that this one has done? Is he or is he not? I tell you this, all the questions and, and confusion and uncertainty that is there in his first coming, gone in his second coming. There is no confusion because the Son of God is not coming as a small child, humble and innocent. He's not going to grow up in, in an obscure secondary region he's not going to be confined in his activity to the general area of Judea when he comes he comes in power he comes in glory in a way that 
no matter how much we would describe it. I'm, and I, I'm happy to say these kinds of things again and again. We live in an age quite different than years ago. Some of us who have been around for a while, different than the younger ones among us. We've seen the progress of special effects. We've seen the way well, things that look like they're blowing up. You know, it, events sometimes that used to be clearly small models that were shot and moved slowly. Now it's, it's done with such remarkable reality, right? Explosions, deaths, powerful, cataclysmic, amazing things. I, I'll tell you this, no matter what Hollywood or anyone else will ever come up with that would seem visually staggering, they are not even close. The combination of the sights and the sounds that will attend the second coming of our Lord, they are beyond men's imagination. The cry of the archangel, it says in Matthew 24. What does that sound like? I don't know. And the trumpet of God. Now, I know what the trumpet of men can sound like. And generally trumpets were there and they were used in war and in battle because the tone of a trumpet would be one that pretty much cuts through. It is a clear, it is a loud, it is, it is a sound that just blasts through all the other uh, sounds that would be taking place and it would alert people, the enemy is coming, gather, ready for war. Well, however, the trumpets of men pierce through other sounds and call men's attention. Call men to readiness. Brothers and sisters, the trumpet of God. That's not going to be, no one's going to turn and say, did you hear something? I, I think I heard something. No, did you? No, no. When this happens, what's going to be the response of everyone? Oh my, what is that? It is going to be absolutely decisive. This is a unique and extraordinary coming. It surpasses all of those things. And as it says, he's coming in power. In that coming, the scriptures are so remarkable. This is carrying on in what we saw in chapter 4. In that coming of Christ, those who were dead in Christ, they are caught up. Their buried bodies are somehow assembled in a form of glory and united with their souls. We are caught up together with them in the air. And in his power and in his glory, with his people and with his heavenly hosts, the elect from one end of heaven to the other, in absolute power and gl glory and dominance, Christ comes. And it says, as the nations assemble themselves against him, he makes war against them with the sword of his tongue. This is powerful. There, there, this is something absolutely extraordinary. So, you know, that is comforting to us. Because it's disconcerting at times to tell people, listen. The gospel's true. The scriptures are true. You need to turn from these things to Christ. 
if you don't by grace lay hold of Christ, you are lost because he is real. He is the only salvation. And they look at you and say, well, there's a lot of different religions. Yeah, there's only one God. <laughs> there's only one Savior. I agree. There are a lot of different religions. Almost all of them manufactured by the machinations of men's minds. But there is one true religion. There is one religion that involves a vital and real relationship with the living God. It brings us into true union to Him. It's not just a devotion to a deity and a devotion to the, to the traditions of that deity. It surely is that, but it is more than the ordinary definitions of religions. Because their gods are stones, wood, ceramic, or purely imaginary, and all non-existent. Now, some would say, boy, that's pretty harsh. What's harsh is to allow people to continue to hold on to a lie that doesn't work. It would be like some, if, if someone was in the water and they are drowning and I throw to them a stone life preserver. Here you go. Grab it. Is that helpful? What happens when they grab it? They're going down. And it, was, it would be very healthy for somebody else to see someone throwing a stone life preserver for me to shout, do not grab that. It will destroy you. There's no hope in that. It will drag you down to ruin. The most loving thing. The world says it's unloving to call other religions false. The world says it's arrogant. It's not arrogant to humbly bow our knees and say what God has said is true. And God is the one who said that there is no God but God. There's no God but the Lord your God. Behold, the Lord your God is one. It is the scriptures that has revealed. Even the, the world comes in and says, how can you believe there's one God? And then you say, this God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So are there three gods or are there one? And what do we say? There is one God who is three in one. And they say, the math does not work. You are mad. But truth is truth. It's a truth that transcends, but it's, it, as it transcends our total comprehension, we are able to comprehend that is what God has revealed. And because of the grace that is operative within us, we see those things, hear those things, and we know and believe them to be true with all of our hearts. But what does that look like? It looks like God. So when we get to eternity, will there be three of them that we see? Let's not over-speculate. It is a remarkable, astounding mystery, but there is one God. 
He is three in one. And how many ways of salvation are there? What does the world say? There are many ways to heaven. There are many ways to God. There are many paths. I've heard the story. Some say it's like an umbrella, which is fitting for today. You have each of the different uh, metal poles, you know, the framework of the umbrella. They all start out in different places, and they all... They, they never even intersect each other, but they all end up reaching the end point. Well, that's how religion is. Eventually, we all reach the same end point. We got there different ways. We understood it with different names and different terms. But then we all eventually get there. Now, that is a false fantasy, which I could also say is a lie. A hopeless, dangerous lie. The scripture says actually narrow is the way and few are those who will find it. The scripture says that there is no other way to the Father except through Him that is Jesus Christ. That there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. That's it. It's Christ alone it's it ultimately indeed it's not christ and the church it's not christ and my works it's not christ and anything else it is all of grace all of god all of christ or it's wrong and again the world will tend to say this how dare you say that well i'm not the one who said that. God said it. How dare I say any different? How dare anyone say any different than God? He is the one who made everything. So he's the one who tells us how everything is and how everything works. Yeah, but I feel, I think in my experience, no good. You weren't there when the heavens were founded. You're not part of the eternal counsel of the all-wise God. He is there alone. You know what you and I are? We're the created ones. We are the creatures. We receive our very life from Him. We receive whatever levels of talent and strength that we have from Him. We receive whatever levels of intellect and knowledge we have from Him. We receive any truth that we come to know exclusively from Him. There's no other way. There's no other source. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, on this unique day, everything changes. You know, it, it's not going to be so much an I told you so kind of thing. Uh, to, to others, it, it, it would be more like we told them. Uh, we're not going to boast over them in that moment. If anything, we will, we will weep for them. Even as they themselves will mourn before the coming of the Lord. But it's important to know this. In those days, it says this in, in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, concerning the times and the season, brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Some, some explanation, some teaching had been given to them, so they understood the times and the seasons. Well, the scriptures are clear concerning those things that do precede the times and the seasons. In Matthew 24, 
And I'm going to be as brief as I can on this because, again, this issue is taken up in, in 2 Thessalonians, which we may get to at some point. But Matthew 24, 21 says this, For then there will be great tribulation. Or as we're coming to, as Jesus is answering that question of when will the end come given to him by his disciples? What are the sign of these things and when will the end come? There will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world till now, no, and never will be. Times and the seasons. The evidences that we're getting closer will be quite clear to us. In 2 Thessalonians, it actually will say things like this, the man of lawlessness must first appear. Really, if we go on, uh, look, listen as I read Matthew 24, because it gives that wonderful picture of that unique day. It says in Matthew 24, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heavens and the powers of earth will be shaken. Does that sound like something that would get people's attention? <laughs> uh, the sun is dark. The moon is not giving its light. The stars have fallen from the skies and the whole earth is shaking. So, I mean, it's, it, it's affecting your sight. Your, your sense of touch and movement is being felt. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of the Man. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. All of the doubters, all of the deniers, all of the disobeyers. Excuses gone. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds all the other lights dimmed darkened and fallen the earth shaking as men stand in darkness and the son of man coming with power on the clouds i mean i know there's a tendency to visualize it and that's good but it's even more grand than our visualizing and then what with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. So the angels are with him. They will gather the elect from the four winds of earth to the, uh, to the others. So you have all of the dead in Christ. We who are alive and remain. All of the elect gathered from one end of heaven to the other. The angels are sent out. So you have Christ. You have the heavenly hosts. You have all of his people. All gathered together in the air. In glory. And it says this. And he. From one end of heaven to the other. Now this verse 32 says this. From the fig tree. Learn its lesson. As soon as its branches. Become tender. And put out its leaves. You know the summer is near. So also when you see all these things. You know that he is near. He is at the gates. Right? The example that's given in our passage here in chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, it says, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Now, the ex two examples that are given. Now, this is helpful because I, I want us to see this. 
we, we move from the unique day, and I'm going to blend the next point. There is an unmistakable distinction on the earth between peoples. Because look what it says. In verse 2 it says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. But look what it says in verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You see the difference? Well, wait a second. I thought it's going to come like a thief in the night. But for the brothers, it's not going to be a surprise. It's not going to catch us unaware and off guard. For the unbelievers, uh, the coming of the Lord will be unexpected. And they will find themselves utterly unprepared. But for the children of God, we will find our, it will be for us completely expected, and we will be well prepared. Now, here's the difference, and here's the example that it gives. A fig tree, you see its leaves, you know the summer's near, so learn from it. Like a woman going into labor pains. Now, generally speaking, if you look, if you look around... And, and a woman is remarkably flat-stomached, even possibly concave, you would say, it's unlikely she's about to go into labor pains. But, as the months progress after inception, what happens? Begins to grow, and, and, and you know, all right, the labor pains could come at any time. We, we see the evidence that it's near. Now, even though you can see the evidence that it's near, does anyone know exact, other than God, know the day or the hour? No. Some children are born prematurely. Some significantly so. Some are born later. I think very, very few are born on the exact date predicted by the doctor. Though maybe on occasion it will happen, but I think it's probably not so frequently. But no one knows the day or the hour, but we know it's getting nearer. It's at hand. It's at the door. Now, they don't see it because they're saying peace and security. So there may be tribulation. There may be famines. There may be pestilence. There may be problems that, they may, that the world may attribute to things like this. This is the cause of global warming. This is the cause of this and that. And this. Well, the world will attribute the problems they're facing to all kinds of reasons. Whereas we know what are the ultimate cause of all of those problems and all of those issues. What are they? God is winding up his purposes. He, the scriptures actually say, as we're, as we're in Peter, it says things like, all of this is to be worn out like a garment. It's not supposed to last forever. Oh no, we're running out of fossil fuels. It's going to be okay. It's not supposed to last forever. It's temporary. And when he comes, it absolutely all winds up. But, but there's evidences. Things go from bad to worse. Wickedness. Immorality. Uh, disobedient to parents. 
lovers of sin, absolute compromises to where nation after nation, God begins to give them over to unnatural lusts. Does that, is that happening? I mean, we look around this world and we see things happening that, I'll be honest, I never expected some of these things to happen in my lifetime. I'm shocked. I would potentially be despairing if it didn't mean that the day is drawing all the more near. And since it means that the day is drawing all the more near, though I and we, like Noah want to be heralds of righteousness, and we will, we will suffer. There's an internal turmoil as we see the wickedness that's going on around us. We know that nonetheless, God's going to deliver us through it. So we're in His hands, but the world is, is coming down. Look at this unmistakable distinction. I want us to see this. The first of unmistakable distinction is that for some, it will be absolutely entirely unexpected. And this apparently does happen on occasion. I've heard stories of this happening where a, a, a lady will go to the hospital. I got a little tummy ache going on right here. And she gives birth before she leaves the hospital. People are like, whoa, how did she not know? And, and I mean, that question goes in a lot of our minds. I, I, I can't understand that. But no matter how much we can't understand that, it happens from time to time. You hear it on the news, or maybe you're aware of a particular situation where that's what happened. And it, and it baffles us. How could they not know? And for the believer, we're going to look at the world and think, how could they not know? I mean, Jesus gave so many simple and clear descriptions of the things that are going to be taking place in this world that precede, that indeed proclaim He is coming soon. He is very near, indeed at the gates. The evidence is there, and the world is saying, I, I don't see a thing. I don't feel a thing. But when it comes, oh, something just happened. Just like those labor pains start, may not know what's going on, but it becomes pretty clear pretty fast. And so when we look at this, it's, uh, the distinction is so powerful between one and the other. It comes like a thief in the night, but look what it says. Verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief. Now, what's interesting about this, I'm just going to help us a little bit. Um, the Greek grammar in this passage is interesting. A lot of helpful transitional words have been added to make it sound like good English. But sometimes the, when it becomes good English... The sense of what's being conveyed gets a little bit farther from us. So I want us to see this. It really, as you read this, it says, more literally, leaving out the added transition words in English, it would say things like this. But you are not darkness, brothers. Not simply in darkness. You are not darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. Verse 5, and again, I'm going to leave out the transitional words. For you are children of light. 
Literally, for you are light children. You are day children. We are not night or darkness. We are so then let us not sleep as others do. So again, and the scriptures do this all the time. It constantly is dividing all of humanity into two categories. We divide into a lot of different categories, don't we? No. Ultimately, when it comes to the day of judgment, how many categories are there? Two. Matthew 25, you have the sheep and the goats. You know, some, well, what about all the rest of the farm animals? That's indicative and descriptive. There are only two. What about the mules? Well, the mules are goats, okay, in case you're wondering. Everything else, well, what about the lions? And what about the pigs? And what about the dogs? They're all goats. You got the sheep and the goats. That's it. You have darkness and light. That's it. You have night and day. That's it. And the scriptures are using extremes. Th things that, that aren't often confused. Day and night. Light and darkness. I mean, generally speaking, for example, if you walk into a room, you don't need to turn to the person next to you and say, is it light in here or is it dark in here? I don't know. Do you do that? No. Is it day or night? Maybe if you're in Alaska, you would feel that way. I don't know if it's day or night. But the scriptures are not giving us that sense. It's giving absolute Powerful distinctions, the same kind of things sheep and goats don't necessarily favor. They look quite different. Even somebody who's not a professional in husbandry, which sounds like what husbands do to their wives, but husbandry is when you deal with animals, if not, will still know the difference between a sheep and a goat. Absolute differences. Now, here, what's important for us to see this... Well, how do we know the difference? Is it when you look at believers, they just have a glow about them? No. I mean, I know you've heard that. And some believers, because of, the, because of the joy and peace that they have, there will be a seeming glow. Okay, I get that. Uh, but you can be fooled because there's some pretty... Um, Positive-minded unbelievers who are very jovial, very excitable, and, and you and well, that person kind of has a glow, but it's not. It's not a. It's that's not the issue. And someone in darkness, it, it's not visible thing. So how will I know if someone is dark or light? How will I know if someone is night or day? How will I know if someone is sheep or goat? What is this unmistakable distinction? Well, what did the scripture say? Those who are of the darkness, what do they do? They sleep and they get drunk. And what do those do who are of the light? They do not sleep. It says they keep awake and they are sober. All right. Now, be careful here, because uh, some of you might be sitting there and saying, oh, no, I sleep. And I'm glad you do. You know, not everyone sleeps. So it's a good thing if you sleep. Uh, so 
What is this saying? Now, be drunk is literal, but it's beyond just the literal. Drunkenness is an expression of how men fill themselves with their own wants and their own desires, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the impact, regardless of the influence. And so, and the idea of sleep is they are not actively doing the things that they ought to be doing. Now, how can they both be sleeping and drunk at the same time? Well, that's, that's exactly the idea. Because these are metaphors, because they are pictures, they are not aware and active and doing the things that ought, they ought to do before a holy and righteous God. Instead, they are filling themselves with all of the fruit of their own wants and desires. Do you know people like that? If you do, you can't look down your nose at them because the scripture says regarding us who are believers, such were you. We were like that until God made us alive in Christ Jesus. But those who then are children of the light, what do we do? We live differently. We indeed walk as children of the light. It says it this way in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8. For at one time you were darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. It's important for us all to know that. Yet yeah, there is distinction in this world. Either light or darkness. But by birth into this world, everyone is birthed as what? Darkness. And it is only by the grace of God that we are brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. Indeed, we become partakers in his light. And that's not something to be considered less. So what's, what's the nature of those who are of the day? They are active. See, sleep denotes inactivity of sorts. Awake denotes activity, energized, effort. They're doing what they're called to do. They're living in a way to please God. And then further, uh, not only are, are they awake, but sober. Now, the sober is a contrast with drunkenness. Drunkenness is, 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 is that, that idea that they're just going focused on those things that bring them some sense of temporary satisfaction and fleeting pleasure. But the idea of being sober is, is being attentive, being focused, being alert, being single-minded. And so the, the, the children of the light, it's like this. I'm not going to dabble in the darkness because there's nothing there for me. This is what I am. This is what I'm about. We live in a world in which, weirdly enough, the, the prevailing spirit of this age is calling on people to um, be themselves. You know, please just be yourselves. Parents, don't tell your child that it's a boy or a girl. Just let them figure it out for themselves and let them be themselves. Um, there's, a, there's a way that you could help them figure it out, by the way. It's not that complicated. All right. And, and they should figure out who and what they are, really are, which is obvious. It's not subjective, it's objective. 
and on the basis of what they objectively are, be that. And the same thing I'm saying is this. People, when, if we are objectively the children of God, be who you are. Which is what? Children of the light. Children of the day. Children who walk in things that are pleasing to Him. We don't give ourselves to the distraction and the diseases of the world. That debauchery, we deny it. We distaste it because it's no longer who we are. We don't want that because that's not who I am. It's kind of like, for example, once upon a time, as a joke, and I'm sorry to embarrass my son, but he's here and, and it just so happens to be fitting. Once upon a time, as a joke, my son was sleeping and he sleeps supremely well. It was early morning, he was not getting up, and so I thought, that's it, he's not getting up. When he gets up, he's going to find out he's wearing his sister's nightie. So I put that little, that nightie on him, and I said, Andrew, get up. What? Andrew, why are you wearing your sister's pajamas? He stood on his bed, ah, and pulled it off. In two seconds, almost ripping the little thing, because in his mind, it, this is not what I am. This is not what I am. I'm all boy. Well, in the same sense, this drunkenness, drugs, immorality, bad language, wickedness, worldliness, covetousness, loving of money. This is not who I am at all. Get rid of it. Take it. Throw it off because I am of the light. I am all light, right? Sadly, not so perfectly. We're in the process, but that is the, that is the idea. And so we, there is an unmistakable distinction here. And I love the way that it, it, it points it out. It goes on to say, we belong to the day. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So what do you have in there? Faith, hope, and love. Those are pretty common things, isn't it? What's also interesting about that, now, you can't get too caught up in the armor element of it and miss the point. What is a breastplate cover? Well done, your heart. And what does a helmet cover? Yeah, I don't even have to point. You know that one, right? So what is it covering? Your head and your heart. Generally speaking, if one of those turns off, what has happened? Yeah, you're done. You're dead. These are those, those things that are protective. In a real sense, I love the fact that, that the, the breastplate is faith and love. Because what? Faith, where there is saving faith, that faith that is the gift of God, it always works itself out in love. It all, and, and where there is real love, it is the outworking of the faith that God has put in our hearts. That's why he says in 1 John, how can you say that you love God and believe and are all these things if you can't love your brother who you see? Faith and love are absolutely intertwined. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. Why do we believe, we believe in him? Because he made himself known to us. Even as Paul says, when, when God was 
pleased to reveal himself to me. That's what happened on the road to Damascus. All his life he was going around. And then suddenly, one day, God was pleased to reveal himself. Did that change Paul? It changed Paul from a life of murderous threats, seeking to extinguish and bring an end to the name of Christ, to what? Now going everywhere to promote Christ, to declare him to be the Messiah, to declare him to be the Son of God. And instead of seeking to put people to death for the sake of the name, he himself was ready to die for the very name he was ready to kill. How does that happen? The power of God. I want to draw our attention to uh, the next thought, and that is the unchangeable destiny. Listen to what it says in verse 9. Now, verse 9 is, for many, uh, an uncomfortable verse. But that's good. If it's an uncomfortable verse, if it's a verse that makes us uncomfortable, then what it means is there's something in what we believe that needs to be corrected. Because if, a, if we read a verse and we say, no, 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 I don't like that verse. Well, we have to, ought to like every single verse. I, I, I don't agree with that. We can't not agree with verses. Why? Because it's God's word. It's God's truth. And this is what it says. And, and so we move on to what I would call the third point today, the unchangeable destiny. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him, whether, we're, whether we are, have already died in the flesh or whether we're alive. Now, who is this that's not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation? Children of the light, children of the of the day. What about the children of darkness? What are they destined for? Well, they're destined to obtain wrath. There are some who are destined to obtain wrath, and there are some who are destined to obtain salvation. Your unchangeable destiny is one or the other. Well, how do I know which one my destiny is? Well, are you light or are you darkness? Well, how do I know? Well, look at your life. Look at how you live. Because how you live reveals who you are. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. By their fruit, you will know them. And that's why we're called to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. We, because the, the faith that God gives absolutely transforms us. It changes who we are and how we live. And so it's important for us to see this unchangeable destiny, uh, either destined for wrath or destined to obtain salvation. Now, I want to point something out before I move on to open that up a little bit. Destined to obtain salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ want to finish that sentence because I want us to understand this. Whenever we think of the idea of salvation, let us never for a moment disconnect it from Jesus Christ. 
He is our salvation. He gave himself. He died taking our sin upon him. He rose again. He is a coming again for us. He is going to raise us from the dead. It's very important. And, and even in Christian circles from time to time, we can get caught up in good, important, biblical words, but we isolate them. Let us never think of salvation Christlessly. And so I love the fact that in this it says to obtain salvation through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So it's not just one or the other, but it's through Christ because Christ is the one. Which is why, for example, in John chapter 6, verse 36, God's word says this. Jesus, in speaking with some of the Jews, he's been teaching these Jews and they are rejecting the truth that he is declaring to them. And so Jesus says to them very clearly, listen to what he says in verse 36, John 6, 36, but I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And, and, and well, what, what do I do? What do we do with that? You have seen me and yet do not believe, leaving them without excuse. But then what does the rest of the verse say? All that my father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Someone says, so wait a second. You're saying that if somebody is in darkness, of the darkness, and they want to come to Jesus, they can't if they're destined for wrath. That's not what I'm saying. Not for a second what I'm saying. I'm saying that if they are in darkness, they won't want to come to Jesus and escape the wrath because they don't believe it. It's not that, it's not that the destiny is, is God is, people are coming and saying, um, I, I really love Jesus with my whole heart and mind, and, and, and God is turning people away saying, no, I'm sorry, you're not one of the elect. No, no, no. Those who are in darkness, they have not the desire to seek God. Again, I'm happy to regularly remind us, what does Romans nine verse, or 3 verse 9 and 10 say? There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one that seeks after God. There is no one that understands. So when in darkness... No one seeks after God. So it's not like there's people, they want to, but they can't get in because it's not their destiny. No, here's the beauty of it. We were in darkness. We did not have the right desires. And much like spiritually, like what happened physically to Paul on the road to Damascus, a light was shined upon us. Corinthians says it this way, a light was shown into our heart revealing the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When that gospel was declared, it was like a spotlight pinpointed us. And it just drew us out of that darkness, and now we are light. That's powerful. Jesus goes on to say this in... Uh, for I have come down from heaven not to do the will of him who, uh, my will, own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
I mean, this is powerful and comforting words because as we're in the light and under the oppression and affliction of those who are of darkness and the struggles and trials of affliction and persecution and mistreatment, we can know this, he is coming again. I mean, really, I've got to jump over to 2 Thessalonians for a moment, and it's just right there. It speaks of this coming of Christ. It says that he's coming. Verse 6, God considers it, of chapter 1, God considers it just to repay with affliction those that afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So here it is. Whatever we're going through, it's okay because I am in the light and he is coming again. It's that, it's that idea that we, people would say when they f- see the finish line that somehow something wells up within them. The idea of a light at the end of the tunnel, they're able to keep going. There is that sense, but again, it's, it's, a, it's stronger for us. Because it's not just um, we alone have to reach that finish line and we alone have to persevere to that light at the end of the tunnel because we are never alone. Christ is in us. His spirit dwells in us. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is our strength. He is our refuge. He is our help in time of need. He is our comforter. He is our a supporter. He is everything. So, so it's, it's not going to be, it's, it's that idea where someone says, I can't make it. And, the, and these kinds of things even happened recently as the Boston Marathons were running in recently. Uh, some people crossed the finish line with their arms around the shoulders of other people. Helped them across. That's kind of the sense in which it is for us. We don't have to make it there under our own strength. Indeed, the marathon that we face, no one would make it there under their own strength. But we have a support. We have a help who holds us up and enables us to reach there. Surely, that, I mean, more so, I mean, we're aware of the Marines, Semper Fi, no Marine left behind. That's a good desire that in certain situations in combat, they are not always able to accomplish. That's their intent. That's their design. But they don't have power in every circumstance. Maybe only one escapes injured And he can't carry the others, who maybe if he could would have gotten it. Well, that's different, because what is it with the sheep? What is it with the children of the light? Not one will be left behind. I tell you, uh, what's amazing is sometimes those things that men look at and those, those sayings that men cling to that seem noble, we don't understand their greatest reflection of nobility is in Christ over and above those things. So much so, it's so much more that I wanted to cover. First Peter 2.8 says this, 
8 through 10. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble. Those who are in darkness, they stumble and disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You have two completely different destinies, darkness and light, the world and his own people, his own possession. That's it. Only two, an unchangeable destiny, all rooted in the person of Christ, which is why John 10 says it this way. He, the gatekeeper opens to him, verse 3 and 4, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. Isn't that powerful? It's so comprehensive. It can't be changed because who can pluck them out of his hands? No, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. The goats don't hear it. The sheep hear the voice. I know them and they follow me. How do you know if you're one of the sheep? How do you know if you're of the day? You follow him. You follow him with a life that is characterized by faith. Hope and love. These things powerfully prevailing in your everyday life. Because of his grace at work within you. And then what does he go on to say? They will never perish and no one will pluck them out of my hand. My father who gave them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. That is an unchangeable destiny, isn't it? And lastly, an unabated discourse. What it says in verse 11 is this. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Or actually, with these words. That's, I'm accidentally quoting chapter 4, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Here it's therefore, encourage and build up one another just as you are doing. Now, some translations here say comfort one another with these words. In affliction, it is surely a comfort. This affliction, as Paul says in Romans, is only like a moment. I consider this momentary affliction nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that he has prepared for those who love him. It's, it's short. It's passing. Many of the brothers and sisters in Christ in ages past and even today around the world are suffering like you, have suffered more than you. It's okay. Christ sees it, and he's coming again, and you're his. Whatever they would do to you is nothing compared to the glory that you inherit and what is ultimately going to be done to them. No comparison. So comfort, and what I want us to see here is the word for comfort or encourage, it's a strong word. It is the idea of urge. And insist, call, summons, beseech. It is a stronger comprehensive word. So yeah, it, it involves comfort, but it also involves this. Wake up. Arise. Walk in the light. You are children of the light. There is an urging. There is a beseeching. There is an imploring. There is a comfort. The word of God has all of these wonderful things. And what I want us to see is this. 
encourage, exhort, admonish, comfort one another with these words. The comfort is in the truth. The world tries to find comfort in lies. In, 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 in the, well, no, once, once it ends, it just ends. There's nothing after this. And they try to find comfort in that, which doesn't sound very comforting. But the scriptures, when, when, when someone is, is um, discouraged and weakened, what do we do? Comfort and encourage them. When someone is stumbling and drifting, what do we do? Urge, beseech, and admonish them. This is calling us to a life of engaging one another with love and words and earnest. It's, it's not even as sometimes happens in the churches today. No, no, no. My, my walk with God is between me and Him. You stay out of it. This is my personal life. There's no such thing as that. We are members of the body, members of one another. You know, when this hand is washing this hand, this hand has no right to say, don't touch me. You're not me. You're another hand. No, the, everything needs to work together. That's the nature of the body that he's put us in. For someone to think that they're going to be just a dismembered finger sitting there on the side and, and carry on, fulfill that, what they're supposed to do. I guarantee you, a finger that's dismembered and sitting on the ground doesn't do much. It might point, but it can only point one direction and can't change directions at all. It's, but, but you attach it connectively, vitally to the body, it's pretty useful. It can do a lot of things. And so the, the scriptures are comfort, are, they deal with that. And that's part of the challenge in the Christian world today. We present the ideas of love that don't allow for rebukes, that don't allow for corrections. Now, the rebukes are to be, we're to speak the truth in love, but we live in a world today where we're not even willing to call sin, sin, and we're not willing to call sinners to turn from their sin. We're not willing to tell them, you know, what you're doing, not many know about it, but I know about it, and you know about it, it dishonors the name of Christ. It is not appropriate for a child of the light and a child of the day. I'm, I'm pleading with you, cease from that. Turn from that. I'm praying for you that God would help you to turn from that. I, we are, when we rebuke one another, it's not because we're against one another to push one another down. It's because we're for one another that we would move the right direction together. But we got to be bold. We got to be willing to encourage one another. And to do that, we got to be together. Which is why this Hebrews, for example, says that you meet together. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but do so all the more as the day is drawing near. That's why it's, it's so helpful. How much can we be an encouragement and admonishment to one another if we see each other for an hour a week? Now, in other words, 
I mean, this is a crazy notion, but I think we're allowed to meet during the week outside of these walls in personal and informal gatherings. Uh, We're allowed to do those things, and those are healthy things, and those are beneficial things, because if the only times that we have are the times we come together on Sunday morning, so much of which is filled with one person speaking and a bunch of people listening or people singing, the amount of interaction and admonishment and encouragement is to a degree limited. Now, again, God knows our circumstances. We all have different practical demands and issues going on in our life. But we've got to understand this. Within this local body, within the larger body of Christ, where God puts us among brothers and sisters and among believers, we need to be actively involved in communicating God's word, God's call, God's encouragement, God's instruction. In other words, the ministry through words and messages is not for professional ministers alone. We all are to be speakers, communicators, encouragers. We are to know it, and then we are to take what we know, and we are to encourage one another, edify one another, admonish one another, comfort one another, urge one another with these words, edifying one another. So let me just uh, conclude with this. Things we've seen today are simply this. There is a unique day, a day like no other. It's unquestionable, undeniable, and it is coming. We are certainly about 2,000 years closer than they were in in the first century. I don't know the day or the hour, and and since the fig tree is somewhat invisible and the pregnant lady is, you know, is figurative, know this, a lot of those signs are going on more and more. We have wars, we have rumors of wars, we know that the day is drawing near. We are getting closer. We're hopeful at any hour. I, I often want to call out like John does at the end of the revelation and say, Amen, Lord, come quickly. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Yes? But then even as we call for him to come quickly, we also need to be ready to say this. And until you come, I will be yours. I will walk in the light. I will follow you. I will come alongside my brothers and sisters and I will speak and serve for you because there is an unmistakable distinction. Night and day, light and darkness, sheep and goats. In that unmistakable distinction, there is an unchangeable destiny. Wrath or salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who by grace obtain that salvation, we now live in an unending, unabated discourse. We're constantly talking to one another and encouraging one another about the word of God and the truths that it reveals. Let's pray. Again, as always, Lord, we are thankful to spend time in your word and and we always plead with you to make it profitable. And it's so rich and so powerful and, and so meaningful and so significant that it's often difficult for me to um, uh, restrain it or uh, even bring it to an end. I also do know that when all is said and done, and um, there's no way I can 
fully convey the total scope of the spiritual truths in your word. So I ask that your spirit would enable the understanding of your people, that you would continue to bless us as we as we love and worship you, even as we sing your praises and then uh, close in prayer very soon, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.